Great to be here this morning and to have the chance just to worship with all of you today, wherever you happen to be. Uh, it is a, a gift of life to not do life alone and to have a community of people that are journeying along the way and practicing the important stuff. We're talking right now about some of the most important practices in human life, and that is the fundamental practice of relationship. Life is about relationship. Uh, our very bodies are a testimony to that. Uh, the different parts conjoined, the atoms and the, the molecular elements of our body all interacting even silently as we sit here in this place today. But we have been ambitious in our church's life recently to think afresh about how the relationships we have can go even higher than they may have settled at. And as I was talking last week, uh, I shared the fact that it's amazing really how so many of our relationships start out with such a high vision and then settle for so little. How over the course of time, we begin to lose our clarity and our commitment to the practices that make relationships everything they can be. We find that as we work out in our lives, we start out with these great desires to get to know the people around us and really bond our life to them and they to us. And we're aspiring to really interpenetrate one another's lives, whether it's a work environment, a social circle, or a family connection, or a love relationship. We start out with this great vision. And then over time, we realize we're relating to a human being, somebody with all kinds of faults and flaws. It's harder for us to recognize we're in the same boat because we're so aware of all the ways that they're not meeting our expectations, our desires. And the friction of dealing with these realities about the other person, uh, whether it is in any one of those spheres of life, begins to show up in the way we communicate with them. As I was talking last week, we explored some of the ways in which our relationships can start to slide into this pattern of speaking or not speaking that involves criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, just walling ourselves off and checking out of real uh, interaction. It got really quiet and kind of uncomfortable uh, when I was exploring and illustrating these practices or patterns of relationship. I felt it in myself as I was even talking about it. I was aware of all the times when I do this, I feel like we live here. We live in this kind of pattern too much of the time. Obviously, no single uh, interaction, even however bad it may be, is going to destroy a relationship. But the cumulative effect of those kinds of practices of criticism and contempt and defensiveness and stonewalling can really begin to mount up and can ultimately drag a relationship to a place we never, ever thought at the beginning it was going to go. And so this is why the Apostle James writes, my brothers and sisters, this should not be because God wants and means for our relationships with him and with each other and with the life around us to, to be the greatest joy of life and the, the thing that feeds us and enables his creation to thrive. My brothers and sisters, this should not be, James says. So I want to invite you today just to take a deep breath right where you're sitting and to think about your own life and to think about the circles of relationship you inhabit and to ask yourself, do I want to have them 
settle at the level they are? Or do I dream that they might go even higher, become even more remarkable rather than just regular? And the good news is that if we have a passion to go there, God is so eager to partner with us and enable us enabling us to get there. There is a grace greater than the gravity of life, and God wants to supply that grace to us. But it's going to require that we think about our way with words. It's going to involve getting more wise, in a sense, about the way we use our words than maybe we've settled into uh, being. And so, In our Bible text for today, we're going right back to the letter that James wrote to the church long ago. We studied it last week, James chapter 3. And we're going to pick up where we left off and look at the very next section. James, in this first section, as we discussed last time, sort of unpacks the way that words can go wrong. And describes the power of the tongue as as potentially a restless evil, a raging fire. I want to talk today about the way that words can go right. I want to unpack what he has to tell us about how our words can be filled with God's wisdom in a way that can really change the nature of our relationships for the good. And so James says here that God's desire is to fill our words with his wisdom. And then he writes, and I quote, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. What would it look like to have your words filled with those qualities as you interacted with others? What would it be like if that set of qualities filled the way you came at even the difficult conversations you sometimes have to have with people around you? And how might that transform relationships? that all of us have. One way of thinking about all of this is to imagine purposely replacing the heavy words that we sometimes attach to the kite string of our relationships with four different ways of speaking instead. Just to give you a visual for this, last week we talked about these four kind of lead weights to relationship, right? Criticism, defensiveness, contempt, stonewalling. Think about this instead as if these ways of communicating that we're going to substitute are like helium balloons on the kite string of the relationship. Uh, Doug McKinley, who I quoted last week, a former staff member of this church and noted therapist and leadership coach, says that in many of the couples and family conversations that he participates in, the very first replacement that's needed is a fundamental shift from a pattern of criticism to a pattern of encouragement. They just need to up the amount of emphasis on encouragement in their communication. Now, as I was honest last week, every relationship is going to need some conversation about performance. You're never going to have a great relationship that doesn't involve some feedback, some, some honest complaint when things are not working right, some discussion around requests for behavior change that we'd like to see, All of this is is essential for a relationship to be remarkable. The reality, however, is that if we're not careful, the way we come at even lodging those things becomes pretty negative, can can, can become pretty heavy, critical, judgmental, condemning. 
Uh, and I don't know how many of you have feel this, but, but there are times when we can actually get to believe that the way we're coming at these things is God-ordained. How many of you have felt at times? I know it's a righteous thing for me. I got a truth I need to share with that person, and I'm going to give them both barrels of it. Boom, boom, right? And we, and we actually feel as we're amping up for this uh, communication process, uh, a certain self-righteousness. That, that we're going to be conveying something the other person really needs to hear. James, the apostle, says, however, that, that the wisdom that comes from heaven is full of mercy and good fruit. I just want to pause for a moment and say, you know, there were times when Jesus spoke bluntly and toughly to people. Uh, I remember he talked to the Pharisees in very direct terms at times. Uh, he, he was really irritated with the way they were abusing people and, and misusing religion and uh, crushing people with their demands. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. They were ripping off the poor, and that really upset him, and Jesus spoke harshly in those moments. There are times, I think, when we will you know, hit hard, but the balance of Jesus' ministry, the vast majority of the time when Jesus is trying to, to, to communicate an important truth, he it's done with mercy and good fruit. You know what that word mercy is? You know the difference between mercy and grace? Grace is when you give somebody a good they don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't give them the bad they do deserve. And there are times when you've been treated in a relationship by somebody in a way that, you know, if we were to do things the regular way, they ought to get some bad in response to the way they've behaved. Uh, to be full of mercy means that you make the decision that even though they might justly deserve to, to be hit hard for this, you're going to give them some slack. You're going you're to not treat them in the way that their actions deserve. To be full of good fruit, the other part of this picture of communications, means to communicate in a way that that um, expresses the fruit of the Spirit. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit, which is another way of saying the character of Christ, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, and self-control. That, that, that the fruit of the Spirit is going to mark the way you communicate if you are filled with God. And so a good rule of thumb in communicating is that if I cannot speak my mind filled by that sort of spirit, then I should count to 10 or 10 million. And I should pray, God, fill me up. Because I really have something this person needs to hear. <laughs> they really need this feedback. God, fill me up so I can deliver it in a way that is wise, that's filled with your kind of wisdom. I could raise a complaint only when I'm able to do it that way. Unless, honestly, I prefer to be an admirer of Jesus but not a follower. I love that you're so gracious and merciful, Jesus. I don't plan to do that. I'm just going to be an admirer, not a disciple of yours. In that case, and you're free to do that, 
just don't expect your relationships to be remarkable. They just can't be without his grace and mercy and all the fruit of his spirit at work in us. To be full of good fruit, it seems to me, also means that we feed people with what they need to do better, to be at their best. You know, the God gives us this fruit, not just for ourselves, but so that we might share it with other people because it is what they need. They need love, joy, peace, patience. They need these things to be at their best. People need encouragement to be at their best. There's one thing that I have come to believe over my 60-something years of life and more than 40 years now in pastoral ministry is that most people that we're interacting with day-to-day that create such distress for us at times or friction with us at times are doing so because they're living out of a heart that is troubled. They might be anxious, it might be guilty, it might be insecure, it might be angry, it, it, who knows what's going, it might be grief-stricken, but they're living out of, of a heart that needs help. And, and one of the most profound ministries we ever get to have in life is speaking or addressing that heart that's beneath all of the layers of defensiveness and, and the mess that, that develops over the years in people. And speaking to that central part of people in a way that helps them and changes them for good, enables them to live differently. In fact, the very word encouragement has the word cur, C-O-U-R, Latin for heart, at the very center of it. To encourage somebody is to speak to their heart in a way that frees them up to be their best. So encouragement is something really worth thinking about. I want to say, first of all, that that to, to put the balloon of encouragement on the kite string of the relationship does not mean offering people empty praise. I think back to the first time I ever preached a sermon. It was in a little church called the First Presbyterian Church of Pleasantville, New York. I was a college student. I was working as their youth director for the summer, and they invited me to speak. I was petrified. I mean, it felt like there was like peanut butter in my mouth. I could hardly get the words, words out. It was a simplistic, disorganized message. I was stammering half the time. I said, uh, about a billion times during the course of the message. I wound up in the church fellowship hall afterwards, and people were coming up. Oh, it was a wonderful message. You did fabulous. Oh, we just loved it. It was fantastic. And then this guy walks up to me, and I'll never forget him because he was a carpenter. I took note of that. There have been some wise carpenters over the years. And he said to me, Dan, that wasn't too good, was it? <laughs> and I said, no, Jim, it wasn't. You know, I, I, and I knew he was telling me the truth. And he said, I admire you for having the guts to get up there. That's hard to do. And I think you should, should just keep at it. Kind of like Donye did. <laughs> just keep at it. And it's going to get better. That was not empty praise. That was encouragement in a wonderful way. When you're trying to encourage people, don't make stuff up. Okay? Don't overstate it. Um, Empty praise like that is kind of like cotton candy. 
It tastes sweet for a moment, but it melts away fast, and it leaves you with a headache and a sticky sense that you're chewing on nothing. Compliments of that kind is not what I mean by encouragement. James says that the wisdom that comes from above must be sincere. It's sincere. So if you can't sincerely come up with a list, in fact, I would say a longer list of what's right, what's, what's working, what that person is contributing, what gifts they have and bring to the party, if you can't come up with a longer list than of the places where they're blowing it and making mistakes and causing you problems and, and having room to grow, then, then, then pray further and ask God for the ability to speak a real word to them. Um, Sometimes I think that one of the reasons why it's hard to name and encourage other people uh, about their gifts is because we're mainly conscious of what we bring to the party. You know, we're rather obsessed sometimes with all the good that we're bringing to the, to the mix. Um, it's a fundamental truth, however, that we always will receive and respond better to constructive critique when we get it from other people if we feel that it's coming from folks who know uh, what we do bring to the process. Uh, for years, I, I have been reviewed by a member of our board of trustees annually on behalf of the whole congregation. And they enter into the, it's hard to talk to a pastor and to offer constructive critique to a pastor sometimes. Um, and, but I've been blessed by having these amazing leaders in our church's life who, who will come in and take me through an interesting process. And the, the best way I can describe this process is that it's a process that involves column one and column two. So think of a sheet of paper, and on column one, the left-hand column, column one, there's a list of all the things that, that this person has noticed that's caught me doing right, or caught me doing helpfully, or seen that I've been trying to bring, or, or, or it's a list of what they've been able to name about... Um, a gift or a contribution in one, in one way or another. And column two are those things that, that, that I still need to work on, that I, I've been ignoring and really need to pay attention to, uh, that I blew and now need to really reflect on. You get this idea, column one and column two. Well, what's made this in such an amazing process for me is that column one is always longer than column two. I mean, there's a, there's a long list usually of things that, that these folks have very intentionally named. So when they get to column two, and they need to get to column two, I can take it. Because my general sense is, this person and the board that they're a part of, they get me. They, they appreciate how I'm trying to do, to do well. And when they give me the constructive critique in column two, I can handle it because it's been preceded by this amazing kind of encouragement. So think about what that might mean in your own interactions with people. Because the more that you can notice and name the value that others are bringing to your workplace or to your home, the more you help people take joy in their own accomplishments and gifts. Try this one. Instead of next time uh, saying, hey, you did a really good job, say, hey, what did that feel like? I can tell you did a great job. But what did that feel like to you to know you did such a great job on that? The more that kind of experience is going on for people, the more they're going to start living out of a renewed sort of heart.
the more they are gonna be ready to take your feedback and to be an even greater blessing. If people are fed more criticism than encouragement in a relationship, they develop a certain contempt for the person that's speaking to them. They, they have a fundamental, there must be something wrong with you that you can't see the good that I'm actually bringing. Contempt is a deep, angry sense of resentment that can be summarized in the words, you don't get me, and you never will, and you don't care to. You just don't get me. And that is why I think one of the most constructive things a lot of us can do in relationships is to attach to the kite string the second of the word balloons I have in mind for today, and that is we need to learn to speak with greater empathy. We need to speak with encouragement, and then we need to learn to speak that encouragement with empathy. People sometimes confuse empathy with sympathy. Sympathy is really me telling you how I feel about something. Uh, I'm sorry that you had a bad day. I feel badly that you're ticked off at me now. That's sympathy. Sometimes we do this even with people in a grieving situation. I feel, oh, I feel so badly for what you're going through. Right? It's, that's sympathy. Empathy, on the other hand, is personally identifying with what somebody else feels. It's getting into it with them. Empathy is when I say, you're right. I, you know, I don't really understand what you've been going through, but I want to. The difference between sympathy and empathy is, is, is you come home to a, a spouse at the end of the day and you're in a conversation and say, how was your day, honey? Um, it was fine. Or it was hard. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Click. Right? Empathy is, tell me more about it. What'd you go through today? What'd that feel like for you? Oh, must have been incredibly hard. Or wow, that must have been unbelievably affirming. Do you feel the difference? Empathy is trying to get into somebody else's shoes. How many of you ever heard the term emotional intelligence? Daniel Goleman, a Harvard psychologist, coined the term. It's often referred to as EQ. And Goleman says that empathy is the fundamental people skill. Every person that's great at relationships, a mentor, a teacher, a coach, a, a, a best friend, a, a spouse, a brother or sister that's really great at relationship, empathy is one of their competencies. Just check that against your own experience. The most remarkable people leave other people feeling that person gets me. They see me and they get me. The Bible doesn't ever use the word empathy, but it does use the word consideration. It's the biblical word for empathy, consideration. In his letter to the church at Philippi, the apostle Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. People misread that. They think that Paul is saying, think of other people as better than you. And he's not saying that. He's saying, think about other people more. Think about what they're going through. Don't just look at life from your own point of view. That's selfish and vain. Spend more time considering what it's like to walk in other people's shoes. 
Paul goes on then to say in that same teaching, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then in one of his most beautiful riffs in Philippians 2, he goes on and says, Christ Jesus, who considered equality with God not something to be grasped, to be hung on to, but humbled himself and took the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even upon a cross. And then he's just, what he's picturing is this Jesus who leaves eternity and, and step by step comes down the staircase to get close to human beings, to identify with their struggles, their pain, and to give his life for them. It's just one of the most magnificent pictures of the heart of God anywhere in the scriptures. It's the core of the Christian faith. Be like that, says Paul. Be like that. Because if you think about it, if anybody had an absolute right to insist that everybody else look at things from his point of view, it was Jesus, right? But instead, he goes out of his way to come alongside of ordinary human beings, take up their hungers and their hurts, ask them what it is they seriously need. What do you want me to do for you, he says so often in the scriptures. And if Jesus can do that, do you think you and I can move a little bit more towards other people to try and understand what they're going through, what they're hoping for, what they're hurting about? The wisdom that comes from heaven, writes James, is considerate, empathetic, and it, and, 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 and it stretches and it stoops and it sacrifices to get into other people's shoes. So the next time we're bound up with a certain contempt for other people because they don't get us, then, then, then stop and say, wow, there I go again, all wrapped up in myself. Help me get you. Tell me more about you and see what happens to the quality of that relationship. You know, it's always a hard thing to say, I was wrong. Not so hard to say, I'm sorry, but much tougher to say, I was wrong. As we explored last week, when people come at us with criticism, we're tempted to get very defensive. We give all kinds of reasons for why we did what we did or didn't do what we uh, might have done. We go on the attack, trying to shift the blame to the other person. We pull out column two, and it's longer than column one, and we begin to hit, it, hit them with our column two towards them. And that way of words has to change if we want a more remarkable set of relationships in life. If we want these connections to rise higher, we have to bend lower. If we want relationships that are really great, we have to replace our defensiveness with forgiveness. That's the second of these key balloons for our relationships. Forgiveness almost always starts with somebody confessing how badly they've blown it. I'm always um, impressed by the uh, Apostle Paul in this regard. And I, one particular statement he makes has always stayed with me. He says to, in his letter to the Romans, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do 
This I keep on doing. <laughs> I mean, like, I've got great ideals. I mean, in my best moments, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be a really great person, but I just keep blowing it. I just keep making mistakes. Can you forgive me? He's really asking. When was the last time you came at somebody else that way? Maybe even in, a, in the middle of a conflict. You just changed the conversation. And you said, you know what? I blow it in so many ways. Uh, I'm not even sure yet how I've blown it in this situation, but I'm sure somewhere I'm a part of this. Uh, can you help me? Can you forgive me for this? You were counting on me to do it, and I didn't do it. You asked me not to do it, and I did it. You deserve better for me. When was the last time you let go of defensiveness and you sought forgiveness instead? James goes on and says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is also peace-loving. In other words, it speaks words that are aimed at ending the attack and the defense pattern that, that takes over relationships in order to reconcile the relationship. For peace to be established, it takes one person lowering the emotional intensity of the situation, right? Showing some humility, like asking for forgiveness or an awareness that they may have messed up and need to figure out how. But it also takes a certain submissiveness on the other side. It takes, it takes somebody else also uh, gentling down in the situation. And I talked to you last week about Dr. John Gottman, who's this amazing relationship expert. Gottman says that one of the things he looks for to determine whether a relationship is likely to soar eventually or is going to crash is how people respond to what he calls repair attempts. You're in this conversation, there's a heated conflict going on, and one person takes a little step in the direction of trying to establish peace. Oh, I hate that we're fighting like this. Or I'm sure I'm, I'm a part of this in some way. Or can we, can we all just take a deep breath for a minute? And if the other person responds to that by slowing and gentling and dialing down the intensity a little bit, there's hope. But if they come even harder still, sensing a moment of vulnerability on the other person's part and deciding to just jump in there and really get their way with that person, it's not good. The wisdom that comes from heaven is peace-loving and it's submissive. Let me make this really, really clear. We don't have to forgive people. We don't have to do it. Like the first moral law after the Garden of Eden was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We can take that route if we choose. It's the natural law. People mess up so consistently and so repeatedly that it's an understandable thing if your response is to say, there's just too much wrong here. There's not enough change here. You're not getting a break from me. I'm trading you in for a better, better model. A new employee, a new boss, a new lover, a new friend. I'm trading you in. That is the regular way of doing relationship. But if you've done that, then you know the next truth that comes with it. 
the next model may not be much better. Right? You're stuck with a world of sinners in every one of your environments, and guess what? They're stuck with you. <laughs> right? They're stuck with you too. So if we can't find a way to forgive people, it's not just our relationships that are at stake, not just the relationship with people, it's the condition of our own heart and our relationship with God that's in jeopardy. One of the most disturbing things Jesus ever said, I mean, it gives me chills when I think about it sometimes, was when he said, with the measure you use with others, it will be measured to you. With the measure of grace and mercy and submissiveness and consideration and, and forgiveness, it will be measured to you. That makes me really think. It makes me sit with a couple of important questions. I commend them for anybody to think about. Do I want to cling to resentments that are actually eating my heart? Do I want to do that? How big a measuring cup do I want God and other people to use towards me? To whom do I need to say today, you're forgiven. I'm letting it go. So that maybe at some point when I need that kind of cup poured in my direction, it will more naturally come. We're almost out of time this morning, so let me just hit one last verbal balloon that I think it makes sense to attach to the kite string of our relationships, and this will be quick. Our relationships, here's the big idea. I'm gonna summarize where we've been going and then close. Our relationships can become much better if we can start to replace purposely criticism with encouragement, contempt with empathy, defensiveness with forgiveness, and if we can substitute the pattern of stonewalling, of walling ourselves off and just leaving the relationship physically or, 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 or um, uh, euphemistically, if we can replace that pattern with true listening. And it is to that particular practice that we're going to return next week, same time, same channel, Hope you can be part of the conversation and invite others to join us. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, I just ask that you will take some seed of your truth that has been scattered today and press it deep into the soil of our heart. You know what especially would be helpful for us individually to take into us and be changed by. So would you do that, Lord? Would you bear your good fruit in us so that some of the relationships of our lives in days to come would go from bad to regular to truly remarkable? For we know it is not your intention that we merely survive, but that we thrive. For you have come in order that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So it is in Christ's name we pray.
and say together, amen. Amen.